The following audio is from a sermon series entitled, The Revelation of Jesus Christ. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit sacredcitychurch.com. Hear the word of the Lord from Revelations chapter 17 and 18. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality, and with the wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers on earth have become drunk. And he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names, and it had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet, and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. And on her forehead was written a name of mystery, Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. When I saw her, I marveled greatly. But the angel said to me, why do you marvel? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast with seven heads and ten horns that carries her. The beast that you saw was and is not and is about to rise from the bottomless pit and go to destruction. And the dwellers on earth, whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world, will marvel to see the beast because it was and is not and is to come. This calls for a mind with wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman is seated. There are also seven kings, five of whom have fallen. One is, the other has not yet come. And when he does come, he must remain only a little while. As for the beast that was and is not, it is an eighth, but it belongs to the seven, and it goes to destruction. And the ten horns that you saw are ten kings who have not yet received royal power but they are to receive authority as kings for one hour, together with the beast. These are of one mind, and they hand over their power and authority to the beast. They will make war on the lamb, and the lamb will conquer them, for he is lord of lords and king of kings, and those with him are called and chosen and faithful. And the angel said to me, The waters that you saw where the prostitute is seated are peoples and multitudes and nations and languages. And the ten horns that you saw, they and the beast will hate the prostitute. They will make her desolate and naked and devour her flesh and burn her up with fire. For God has put it into their hearts to carry out his purpose by being of one mind and handing over their royal power to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. And the woman that you saw is the great city that has dominion over the kings of the earth. After this, I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was made bright with his glory, and he called out with a mighty voice, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable beast. For all nations have drunk the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality, And the kings of the earth have committed immorality with her, and the merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxuries living. Then I heard another voice from heaven saying, 
Come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues. For her sins are heaped high as heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. Pay her back as she herself has paid back others, and repay her double for her deeds. Mix a double portion for her in the cup she mixed. As she glorified herself and lived in luxury, so give her like measure of torment and mourning. Since in her heart she says, I sit as a queen, I am no widow, and mourning I shall never see. For this reason, her plagues will come in a single day, death and mourning and famine, and she will be burned up with fire, for mighty is the Lord God who has judged her. And the kings of the earth who had committed sexual immorality and lived in luxury with her will weep and wail over her when they see the smoke of her burning. They will stand far off in fear of her torment and say, Alas, alas, you great city, you mighty city Babylon, for in a single hour your judgment has come. And the merchants of the earth weep and mourn for her, since no one buys their cargo anymore, cargo of gold, silver, jewels, pearls, fine linen, purple cloth, silk, scarlet cloth, all kinds of scented wood, all kinds of articles of ivory, all kinds of articles of costly wood, bronze, iron, and marble, cinnamon, spice, incense, myrrh, frankincense, wine, oil, fine flour, wheat, cattle and sheep, horses and chariots, and slaves, that is, human souls. The fruit for which your soul longed has gone from you, and all your delicacies and your splendors are lost to you, never to be found again. The merchants of these wares who gained wealth from her will stand far off in fear of her torment, weeping and mourning aloud. Alas, alas, for the great city that was clothed in fine linen and purple and scarlet, adorned with gold, with jewels, and with pearls. For in a single hour all this wealth has been laid waste. And all the shipmasters and seafaring men, sailors and all whose trade is on the sea, stood far off and cried out as, as they saw the smoke of her burning. What city was like the great city? And they threw dust on their heads as they wept and mourned, crying out, Alas, alas, for the great city where all who had ships at sea grew rich by her wealth. For in a single hour she has been laid waste. Rejoice over her, O heaven, and you saints and apostles and prophets, for God has given judgment for you against her. Then a mighty angel took up a stone like a great millstone and threw it into the sea, saying, So will Babylon the great city be thrown down with violence, and will be found no more. And the sounds of harpists and musicians, of flute players and trumpeters, will be heard in you no more. And a craftsman of any craft will be found in you no more. And the sound of the mill will be heard in you no more. And the light of a lamp will shine in you no more. And the voice of bridegroom and bride will be heard in you no more. For your merchants were the great ones of the earth. And all nations were deceived by your sorcery. And in her was found the blood of prophets and of saints. And of all who had been slain on earth. This is the word of the Lord. Danielle, thank you for reading that one. The longest passage that we've been studying so far in the book of Revelation. I want to welcome you quickly. My name is Justin. I'm one of the pastors here. And um, it's my joy to bring to you the word of God this morning. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for your grace that's already been displayed to us. Thank you for the musicians. Thank you for our worship this morning. What a treat that was. 
Thank you for being here by your spirit and by your word. And we ask now that you would anoint the preaching of your word, that you would think through my mind and speak through my vocal cord, that it be all of you and none of me. Father, do this for your glory and our good. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, wasn't that a quaint little Bible passage? We have a lot of work to do today, so I'm going to jump right in. Now, do I really need a compelling introduction when the text is full of prostitutes, sexual morality, beasts, sorcery, and war? Sounds like a Game of Thrones novel. Well, if that doesn't whet your appetite, let me say this. What God is showing us in our text today is very likely your current greatest temptation in life. Your greatest weakness that puts your life, your family, and your future in peril and is the root cause of the greatest problems in your life. It's the reason you feel spiritually lukewarm most of the time. It's the reason you are exhausted and wonder if you can keep up with the pace that everyone around you seems to be running at and seems to be doing okay at, but when you sit down, you're, you don't know if you can make it another day. And it's the reason you medicate your spiritual malaise with alcohol, prescription pills, shopping, and binging Netflix. Who knew you could learn all that from a prostitute sitting on a scarlet beast? Well, here's what we need to find out today looking at this text. We've got four things. We're going to get through it quickly. One, who is the great prostitute? Two, how does she work? Three, how is it going to end for her? Fourth, who cares, right? What, what does it mean for us? Four points. Let's get after it. Chapter 17, verse 1. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality, and with the wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers of the earth on earth have become drunk. Who is this great prostitute? Well, as you continue to read the text, you begin to realize that this isn't a person at all. It's actually a city. It is the city of Babylon. Look at verse 5. And on her forehead was written a name of mystery, Babylon, the great mother of prostitute and of earth's abominations. Now, to understand what the heck is going on here, we have to go back in time a little bit and we have to situate ourselves in the story. We have to understand the narrative of what's going on, all right? Now listen, there are many things about God that we would never know if it wasn't for the Bible. The Bible is God's self-disclosure to man, now, the Bible doesn't tell us everything we would like to know about God, but it does tell us everything we need to know about God. Scripture tells us that there are certain things that every single human can know about him by, at birth. We can know things about him. 
We can know him as creator. We can perceive some of his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and his divine nature. In that sense, there's no such thing as an atheist. Everyone is born believing in a creator, sensing, John Calvin calls it your your divine sense, this thing in you that you just know there is a God, you know there is a creator. You You even know that there's a moral law out there. But there are many things that no human could ever know if it wasn't for God revealing himself to us through his holy word. And today we're looking at one of those instances. No one would ever come up with what, we've, what we're going to talk about this morning. Now, last week, if you were with us, we discussed briefly God's independence. Theologian Wayne Grudem defines God's independence like this. God does not need us nor the rest of creation for anything. Yet we and the rest of creation can glorify him and bring him joy. What he's saying there is God is the only being in existence that is 100% self-reliant. He needs nothing from anyone. God is not dependent upon any part of creation for his existence or for his nature. That means without creation, God would still be infinitely loving Infinitely just, infinitely eternal, infinitely omniscient, infinitely Trinitarian. On and on I could go. He needs nothing. He lacks nothing. He is love in himself and therefore is always perfectly loved. He, as a Trinitarian being, has always been loved and has always loved. Therefore, he did not create man because he was lonely and he needed someone to love or he needed someone to love him. That would make God dependent upon man for something, and he isn't. But, we covered that last week, but Grudem places something else inside of his definition of independence that's meant to keep us from error. He says, quote, God does not need us, and yet we can glorify him and bring him joy. That is a statement that is true and biblical and is meant to keep us from thinking that, that God is somehow not interested in us. Like he's so happy in himself that we don't matter to him. See, some people wrongly conclude from the doctrine of God's independence that if God has all meaning in and of himself and he doesn't need us for anything, then that must mean we are meaningless and insignificant. That's not true. In fact, we are incredibly meaningful because... God has created us and has determined that we would be meaningful to him. That is the final definition of genuine significance. Listen to this. God speaks of his sons and daughters that cover the face of the earth as this, quote, and from Isaiah 43, verse 7. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I have created for my glory, whom I formed and made... See, God did not have to create us, but he chose to do so in a totally free choice, on his own free will. It's also true that we are able to bring real joy and delight to God, and it's one of the most amazing facts in Scripture. 
that God actually delights in his people and he rejoices over them. Zephaniah says he rejoices over them with singing, that God is a God who sings. Now, I sense that when we were singing this morning. There's something deep in the human soul that loves to sing, right? Why? Because our God is a singing God and we are made in his image. In Genesis, the very beginning, the book of beginnings, you go all the way back to Genesis. Before man decided to rebel from under God's love and care, God himself would walk with them in the cool of the day. Imagine what that was like. God enjoyed his people. People enjoyed their God. Isaiah prophesies that someday it's going to be like that again. And this is what he says in Isaiah 62, verses three through five. Quote, you shall be a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord and a royal diadem in the hand of your God. You shall no more be termed forsaken and your land shall no more be termed desolate, but you shall be called, listen, you shall be called, my delight is in her. And your land married. For the Lord delights in you, and your land shall be married. Listen, as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. Now, I do a lot of weddings, right? And one of my favorite parts of doing a wedding is standing there with the groom and all their favorite people and waiting for those doors to open and watch her step in, and I, just, I don't even look at her. I look at him. I look at, the bride, I look at the groom here waiting to see how he reacts to the bride, right? And if he goes, then I'm like, time out. Time out. We got an issue here, right? I'm looking at Vinny up there. And I remember doing Vinny's. Vinny's a tough man's man. But when he, saw that, when he saw that woman, I watched it, <laughs> right? I'm like, yes! That's what's supposed to happen. That's what's supposed to happen. And many men are like, the night before, no, I, no we've been together a long time. I love it. It's not, and those doors open, something happens. <laughs> something de deep down happens. Well, listen, this is what the scripture's saying, that God is going to do a work in his people in such a way that he's going to restore them and he's going to delight in them like a groom delights in his bride. Listen, what that scripture is saying, and there's a lot of other scriptures that say the same thing, is that one of the reasons God created us was so that he could delight in us. God, God will rejoice over his people like the groom rejoices over his bride. Now, this is something that you and I would never figure out on our own, right? You don't go to the Grand Canyon and go, I can tell God's really into me, right? You go to the Grand Canyon, wow, he's glorious, he's, he's a creator, he's divine, all, all these powerful, but you never go, God is into me like that? You don't just figure this out. It has to be revealed to us, and it's revealed to us through God's word, through divine disclosure. Listen, this is what I'm saying. God made us to marry us. 
That's the type of love he has for us. He is covenanted himself to us, husband and wife. He is passionate for us. He desires us. Now, that tells us something unique about God. And I could spend the whole day talking about it, but I also want to see it tells us something important about ourselves. And it, let me just pause. The wrong implication is you're just so beautiful. You're just a unique snowflake. And God looked down and said, I've never seen such beauty before. I need that in my life. It's not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is we were created by God to love him above all else in return. He created us to delight in us and he created us so that we could delight in him. That is the ultimate meaning of life. We were made as a spouse for God and were called and created to reciprocate that love. We are called to be devoted to God above all else. We are called to be passionate for God above all else. We are called to be covenanted to God above all else. But what the Bible tells us in its earliest chapters is that mankind decided in an act, let me say here, in an act of cosmic adultery to give themselves to another lover. Though we were made, for, made for God and we have a desire for God, we chose to point that desire at something else. See, think of your desire as a garden hose. It's always on. Okay? And you're always desiring and you're always loving and you're always craving something. Have you noticed that about yourself? That's your desire for worship. And it's meant to be pointed at God. And in this act of cosmic adultery, we turned from our one true love and we pointed it at something in creation. We said, thanks for everything, God. But we're just not that into you anymore. See, we, we have meaning and value because we're made in the image of God and we're made to worship and enjoy him. But mankind chose to value something of the creation above our creator. And it was a rejection of the one we were made for. It was no less. That's how the Bible refers to it over and over and over. Spiritual adultery. See, that apple... That apple wasn't just an apple, right? That apple was this human desire to worship something other than God. It was a desire for autonomy. It was a desire to be out from under the rule of God and be able to make my way on my own. It was an act of adultery. And because of that adultery, God cursed Adam and Eve. And he sent them out of the garden. And it's interesting, bad, as soon as they get out of the garden, all kind of bad stuff starts happening. Murders start taking place. Rape starts taking place. Incest starts taking place. Wars start taking place. All kind of bad things happen once they get out of, under God's good protection, right? They're out on their own. They're autonomous. And now who makes right and wrong, right? They're out there and they're just 
They, they're doing what they want to do. But it's interesting, as you get a few chapters down the road, we see their descendants moving east, and that just means moving farther and farther and farther, kind of away from Eden, away from God's realm, in a sense. And as they do this, they begin to gather together, and they begin to settle down. And what, what happens is they begin to pool their resources together to build a great city and a tower that would reach up to the heavens. It's interesting. They have all kind of technological advancements. God told them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. He told them, go split the atom. I've, I've talked about this before. Go be creative. It's the cultural mandate. Go make things. Well, they do that, and they, they figure out a way to harden bricks, how to make bricks by hardening them in the sun. It's a technological advancement that allows them to build great buildings. And what they say is, we're going to build this great city right here. We're going to gather all of our resources together, pool everything together, and we're going to build a great city and a great tower. Scripture says that they are united in purpose. But here's what they say, and this gives us insight into what's going on. They say this, let us make a name for ourselves. Let us make a name for ourselves. Now in one sentence, that is what is wrong with us. We have already been named we have been created in the Imago Dei, in the image of God. We are, we are, our DNA is stamped with divine approval. We have God's name written upon us. We've already been given significance, value, and worth being made in the image of God. But instead of trusting God and leaning into that, who am I, God? Who do you say that I am? They push away. And they say, let us make a name for ourselves." This is man's search for autonomy. It's also spiritual adultery. Now, why am I bringing all this up? The name of that place where they built that great tower, many of you know, was called Babel. What's interesting here is from that moment on in the story of God, the Bible could be called a tale of two women. The bride of Christ and the whore of Babylon. The bride of Christ are those who accept God's naming of them. They accept God's name. And the whore of Babylon are those who go out and try to make a name for themselves. See, Babel is where we get the name Babylon. Babylon became a city, and it was a kingdom in the Old Testament. But by the time Revelation was written, Babylon, the city, had, had long been destroyed, almost 600 years before John is, writing the, John is writing the book of Revelation. Babylon was in the history books. So why is John saying Babylon, the great prostitute, is doing all this stuff if Babylon was in the past? See, Cyrus of Persia came in, sacked Babylon in 538 BCE. Therefore, John isn't talking about the city of Babylon. He's talking about what Babel 
and Babylon represent. That's to say, Babylon in this letter that we're reading today, Babylon is symbolic. Can you hear that? Because he uses like, he says it like six times. Babylon, the seven hills, that, that he's talking about Rome specifically there. And then he's talking about, he just uses a lot of different illustrations for the same thing. In our text today, Babylon is called the great prostitute and the mother of all prostitutes and of the earth's abominations. In our text today, we see Babylon is drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of martyrs of Jesus. So what's going on? Babylon symbolizes humanity's ambition to reject God and do life on their own terms. That's what Babylon is. God, you stay in your domain. Let me rule my domain. So the great prostitute here in Revelation 17 is the secular world system that tells us, told the people of John's day, told the people at Babel, tells us today, don't listen to God. Go out there and make a name for yourself. Prove yourself. Prove your existence. So, one, who is the prostitute? Babylon. Who is Babylon? Babylon is the world system, the secular world system that tempts us away from our God, tempts us to make a name for ourselves. Now, the second question we asked is, how does she work? We talked about this before. More than likely, the beast the Antichrist, it's not, he's not going to show up at the end of time and just straight up say, worship me or die, right? That's like the easiest question. That's the easiest thing to answer, right? I heard about this in Sunday school one time. That sounds like a bad idea, right? No. What John shows us here is the tricks of the enemy, the tricks of Babylon, the tricks of the spirit of our age are much more innuendo, much more subtle. It's a seduction. Now, when you think about seduction, seduction isn't just something that's presented from, you know, something that's just stark, that's just like random. There's something about seduction that comes from within. It's something outside of you that appeals to something inside of you, something you desire, something you want, something that you think looks good. This great prostitute, Babylon, how does she go about seducing her clients away from the living God? A quick reading of chapter 18 shows us her tactics. She appeals to our base instincts. Sexual drive, Luxury, riches. Over and over in the chapter, it emphasizes her allure, her attractiveness, her temptation. What does she use to get us to turn our eyes away from the lover of our soul? 
Listen, interestingly enough, she doesn't pose a scientific problem. This is not a problem of logic. She doesn't go after our intellect. She goes after our gut, our instincts, our desires, our loves. The chapter lists many of these loves. Here's a few of them. Gold, silver, jewels, pearls, fine linen, clothing, sweet-smelling stuff. There's a bunch of it in there. Fancy wood, a bunch of it in there. Stones, metals, sounds like a good kitchen remodel. <laughs> they go on, oil, food, spices, cattle, horses, chariots, fancy restaurants, pets on pets on pets, automobiles, chariots. Then he tops it all off. Oh, interesting with slaves. And he clarifies that, human souls. Why? What's necessary to keep the system running? So he's, he's addressing merchants, buyers and sellers. He's addressing the economy. Do you see how she allures all her clients? interesting. She doesn't come in with teeth barred and blood dripping from her fingertips and like some kind of demonic ghoul. She knows that's not needed. You see in the chapter, that's what she looks like in reality. Chapter 18 says, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She's becoming a she has become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit. But that's not how she appeals God's people away from him. No. She appeals them. She tempts them through luxury, affluence, wealth, passion, immorality, 18, chapter 18, verse 7 says, she glorified herself and lived in luxury. She said in her heart, I sit as a queen. I am no widow, and mourning I shall never see. See, money gives me all I need. I have high walls. I have a fat bank account. Nothing can get to me. Here's what God is showing us. We have an enemy who wants to tempt us away from our one true love, tempt us to commit adultery on our, the lover of our soul, God himself, and the way our enemy comes at us, it looks easy. It's appealing to our base instinct, our desires for comfort, our desires for wealth and luxury. But behind those desires is lurking something sinister, a desire to pull us away from God. 
This is why Jesus said in Matthew 6, 24, no one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. See, money, wealth, affluence, luxury can become an idol. Think about it. Most of the time, we use our money to protect us from the problems of life. We use our money to buy insurance. Lots of it, right? We, we use our money to keep problems at bay. And many times, that keeps us from desiring God, from needing God. I don't have to pray about this. I've got insurance to cover it. I don't have to worry or think or trust about this. I've got money in the bank. This is why over and over and over in the New Testament, Jesus says the poor are closer to the kingdom of God. Now, what does that mean? It doesn't mean that the poor are somehow more holy or more righteous. It means the poor are more aware of their lack. They're more aware of their need. They're more aware that this world is not all there is and I can't meet all of my joy and meaning and purpose and significance through the things that I own. The poor are aware of that and therefore cry out to God more readily and more easily. But the rich do, our be do their best to insulate themselves from, uh, from the poor, from the broken, from the needy, from the pain of the world. Paul, the Apostle Paul writes to Timothy and he says this, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have, look, wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pains. In Proverbs, we see the seductress, the prostitute, tempting and luring the foolish young man away from his fidelity to his God, away from his wife, and, and, he's, and he's going like a stag to the slaughter. He doesn't know it. He's just led by his desires in, and his spiritual throat is about to be cut. Paul says the same thing to Timothy. The love of money leads people away from their first love, God. So we see that the prostitute is the world system, the way everybody else is doing it. The, the temptation, the, the tactics that she has are wealth, luxury, affluence, immorality. Go out, the, the tools to make your name great. Isn't that how we're tempted to make our name great? How many people can you sleep with? How many people can you rack up? How many, how much money can you get? How high in the corporate ladder can you go? How much square footage can you manage? How nice of a vehicle can you have? How great of a vacation can you take? Third, how's it going to end for her? This one's easy. 
I think, first off, Jesus kind of spoils the story, ruins it by letting us know, 17, chapter, chapter 17, verse 4, the woman, is that it? Or is it, no, I mean, it's 18, chapter 4. 8, verse 18. Oh, shoot. I hate when I do that. 17. Four different times here, chapter 18 tells us, for in a single hour, all this wealth has been laid waste. For in a single hour, your judgment has come. For a single hour, she has been laid waste. For in a single day, for this reason, her plagues will come in a single day. What is the promised end of Babylon, the prostitute, the world system that pulls people away from God to worship something other than God? Judgment in a day. Verse 14, the world system, they will make war on the lamb, 17, 14, I'm sorry. They will make war on the lamb and the lamb will conquer them. I like this. First off, we know that Jesus is the lion and the lamb. If the lion shows up and devours people, people are like, whoa, that was intense. But if a lamb shows up and kicks some butt, like, yes, that just shows how powerful our God is. The lamb devours the kingdom of the world that is set against God. And those with him are called chosen and faithful. Now listen, what is so beautiful is that God destroys the prostitute so that the bride of Christ can finally be true to her husband. See, right now, God has judged sin. He's made us righteous in Christ when we put our faith in Jesus Christ. He's made us righteous. But we know we all have sin remaining, right? And it's this battle. That's why riches and wealth and luxury and affluence is still a temptation to pull, probably our chief temptation to pull us away from our love for our God. And right now we're in a battle and we're in a war and it's difficult every day of our life. And God is going to come and crush the prostitute. And he does it so that our, our external temptation is gone. We can be the bride of Christ, and we're going to see that next week. And in the next chapter, this is what Jesus says, let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory for the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. The church is the bride of Christ. And in order for us to be made ready, the world system must be crushed and judged first. So that's how it's going to end. God wins. End of the story. Lastly, how are we now, and I'm closing, how are we to live now in light of this truth? Who cares? So what, you may ask. Red beasts and prostitutes and sorcery, who cares? What is this? First off, this is a, a creative way to teach lessons, okay? Teach us spiritual truth. And it's, it's every bit as real just because it's using a different approach. 
I don't want to get into that too much. Look at chapter 18, verse 4. Then I, this is our response. This is what it means to us. Then I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins. Now, this is not a call to become a monk and separate yourself from our city to find you know, someplace out in the outskirts of town and build yourself a bunker and you're going out and you don't want to have anything to do with it. No, no, because you get out there and you're still a part of the system, right? You still have the internet out there, <laughs> right? No, it's a call for Christians to separate ourselves from the sins of affluence and spiritual adultery. Christian, as you believe the gospel, your life must take the shape of the gospel. The gospel must influence the way that you live. If the gospel isn't changing the way you live, then you do not believe the gospel. Think about it. In spiritual adultery, you are giving what belongs to God to another lover. From our examples in this text, your body, Corinthians tell us, Corinthians tell, tells us, your body is for the Lord. You're meant to glorify God in your body. But in, in our text this morning, what's the temptation? The temptation is to use your God-given body in immorality. The temptation, God gives you all the money and all the resources that you have and all the talents that you have. And the temptation is to use your money in greed. You've been given a life from God and you are tempted to live it in luxury and comfort. Listen, our bodies are for the Lord. Our money is meant to meet our physical needs and meet the needs of others around us and further the mission of God in the world through the ministry of the local church. Our money is for the Lord. Our lives are not meant to be spent reveling in luxury. Rather, they're meant to be poured out as a drink offering to the Lord. What, what does that look like? I've got three practical implications, three examples, three illustrations, whatever. When you're following the way of Babylon, your home becomes your kingdom, becomes your castle. It's your biggest asset, more than likely becomes about you. You don't want to have too many people over because they might mess up your floors. They might leave, you know, sweat rings on your coffee table. It's your castle. It's the place that you go and you look around and you remind yourself, I finally made it. I worked hard. You could say that your house is the chief way 
Whether or not you know if you've made a name for yourself. But in the kingdom of God, see, when you believe the gospel, your home becomes your mission station. You recognize God gave me this home to further his mission, so I want to have my neighbors in. I want the neighbor kids to come over. I'm okay with people coming in and damaging my floors and messing up my countertops and breaking my china and scratching up my table sometimes. I'm not the guy that yells out at the neighbor kid that walks across his yard. My house was given to me by God for his mission. So how can I leverage the home that God gave me to further his mission, to get more people into my home where they can hear and experience the gospel and and see a person who's been changed by the gospel, who the perfection of my floors doesn't concern me as much as the eternal state of their soul. Yeah, they'll break your chairs. Yeah, they'll eat your food. Yeah, they'll use up all your condiments. The life that's been changed by the gospel, the home becomes a mission station. Secondly, your job is your chief, sometimes your chief place to find out if you've made it in life or not. Have you made a name for yourself in your career? Right? How many people think you're awesome? Right? How many people are underneath you? Your job is a place to, to your primary place that you get wealth. That tells you you're meaningful. And it, it's where you get accolades and you get recognition and you get more names behind or more letters in front of your name or behind your name or whatever it is or a corner office, whatever it is. But for the person who believes the gospel, your job is your missionary assignment. God has perfectly, sovereignly, providentially given you the gifts, placed you through all your education, through all the way you've raised, you were raised, your neighborhood. He got you exactly where he wants you, to, wants you to be, and he placed you there as a missionary. You are right there as a missionary. Your boss more than likely needs the gospel. You're there for that reason. Your employee more than likely needs the gospel. You're there for that reason. You are a missionary sent to your employer, wherever it is you are. When a person understands the gospel, their job isn't the place to build identity anymore. They've already got an identity from God. Their job is a place to live out the identity of a missionary. Oh. Our culture says, Work, 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 work until you're 62. Then it's okay to be a beach bum. All your life, it's not okay to be a beach bum, right? We tell everybody this. Don't waste your life. Get to work until you're 62. Then it's okay. Go ahead. See you later. Why? That's not biblical. Listen, your retirement is a missionary transition. You better be thinking like that. It's not an opportunity to get pulled out of community and now travel all around the world chasing your kids wherever they move. 
Never have any friends anymore. Never have any deep community anymore. Never on mission anymore. Because my grandkids got a football game. My grandkids got a soccer game. I'm flying to the ends of the country. No, no, no. Go back to the scriptures. Retirement is just a missionary transition. Maybe now it's time to join a gym. Maybe it's now it's time to get further involved in your church. Maybe now it's time to start mentoring young men or young women. Like the scripture tells us too. It, hey, take the long road trip. See all the great sights out west. We all want to go do that. Then come back and get on mission. <laughs> Third. Our money, our income potential, our investments, our retirement accounts, our bank account. When I'm out there trying to make a name for myself, it becomes one of the chief ways I can say, I'm doing it, I'm killing it, crushing it. It's how we make a name for ourselves. But once a person believes the gospel, your money is mission ammunition. I've said it before around here. Your money can blow big holes in the gates of hell. That's how we bring on staff. That's how we raise up church planters. That's how we plant new churches. We can't do that without money. It can't be done for us. Your money is the way that we further the mission of God in our city. It's one of the ways. It doesn't happen on its own right? We got to raise up men, right? We got to preach the gospel. We got to make disciples. We got to do all those things, but money funds it. And you see this over and over in the New Testament. Your money is actually God's money that he's given to you so that you could steward it well, feed your family, Enjoy a vacation, enjoy some nice things, and then give ridiculously to the mission of God. It's not, God doesn't just pour out and pour out and pour out so you can just keep raising your cost of living. He, he might be doing that so you raise your cost of giving. It's a common Common knowledge that J.C. Penney was a Christian, and by the end of his life, he was living on 10% and giving away 90 to further the kingdom of God. Now, as I close again, <laughs> here's the deal. We look at our life. Is this true for you? Do you feel a strange pull that money and immorality and luxury, and wealth, and affluence feels more, tan feels more desirous than God. See, this is a pull to another lover. This is sin. But listen, I want you to hear, your hope is not in your abstinence. Your hope is not in your strength. Now, it's going to take all your strength to resist. But your hope is that God doesn't permanently divorce his people for their adultery. He sends 
the bridegroom, the ultimate bridegroom, Jesus, his own son, to do what they could not do. And Jesus, as our head, our federal head, our representative, he comes and he puts on human flesh and he lives the life that all of us fail to live. He never cheated on God once. Riches, I don't need it. That's why he's born poor. Power, I already got it. What are you talking about? Avoidance of suffering? No, I'm going to the cross. I've already got eternal glory with the Father. The temptation didn't work on Jesus. He resisted them all. He crushed the whore of Babylon in his life, and he's going to crush her in finality at the end of time. And Jesus, see, he takes the punishment that we deserve, and what does he offer us? Here's what he offers us. He offers us what you're out there in the world trying to, trying to create on your own. He offers us a name. He offers us his name. Sons and daughters of the living God, forgiven, loved, cherished, desired, delighted in. He offers us by free grace what, they're out, what we're out there in the world trying to earn on our own. We're that dumb. But thankfully, God is that gracious. And it takes us confessing that, turning from our willful disposition of, I want autonomy, I want to make a name for myself. No, 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 I'm going to go to you and trust you and receive this from you, Jesus. You earned it for me. I want your righteousness. It's better than anything I could produce on my own. And by doing that, it's going to free us to use our homes, to use our workplace, to use our money for the kingdom of God and not building an identity that's going to be crushed in the end if it's not built on Christ. Let me pray. Father, I thank you for this scripture. As obscure as it is at first reading, but it speaks so true and real and deep to where we are and where we live. I pray that you would take it deep into our soul and you'd, you'd burrow the gospel down in our soul and you would create gospel people, people that long to live for our lover, our chief lover, you alone. And we use all the created things for your glory and not our own. Otherwise, we come to the table this morning, we're reminded of the ultimate example of that, that you lived for another world. You lived for your father and not this world. So you were okay being poor. You were okay being broken. You were okay being cursed so that we might be blessed. So we come with our hands open to receive by grace what you've earned for us. Your body was broken and your blood was shed so that we could be reunited and forgiven with our first love. We thank you for this. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.